it's not a collapsing fishery or it's not the really the rapid extinction of of you know a, a particular species so coffee is a plant that you know is in the growing and the production of coffee is a plant that from a conservation perspective is not at all gloom and doom coffee absolutely has so much scope for looking at how you might create an absolutely out there far out alternative model of both cultivation that is far more uh, in sort of tune with both the local ecosystem the kind of uh, environment that it is in but then also the participation of smallholders in that value chain in growing really really high quality specialty coffee Arshia Bose is a scientist who completed her PhD on environment and development in the 2000s. Her PhD research focused on market approaches to biodiversity conservation in India or how markets can be used to create a sustainability value for products. To get more specific, she studied how this could work for small-scale coffee producers in Coog, a district nestled in the western ghats of southern India. In this episode, we're going to find out about our relationship to the things we love, like fish, like coffee, or even traveling. These are things that are frequently talked about in relation to high consumption lifestyles, the kind that make climate change worse. We all know that sustainable producers need ethical consumers. Going beyond the label, how are organizations in the sector contending with issues such as livelihoods of small-scale producers, value chains and their inclusion in global markets, environmental and biodiversity sustainability, and most importantly the changing power structures needed in the marriage between producers and consumers. Basically, What does it take to make the marriage work? Welcome back to In the Field. This is the second half of a two-part mini-series on the relationship between sustainability and consumption in India. If you haven't listened to part 1, please do so now. Everything in this episode will make better sense if you do. In the Field is hosted by Radhika Vishwanathan and Samyukta Varma and we are supported by Rohini Nilekani Philanthropies. Until around 200 years ago, most of the Western Ghats were forests. But major ecological changes took place around then when vast tracts of forest land were cleared to make way for the famous tea, coffee, spice and rubber estates that we've come to associate with that region. It also really interestingly has a very sort of love-hate relationship with sun, sun, the sort of, you know. And so you end up with uh shade. You need mm-hmm. shade exactly. And the shade for coffee can come in a number of different ways. You could have forest trees which was originally, you know, what you do. So if you looked walked into a forest and you look for wild coffee, that's exactly how you would find it under the shade of native tree species and so a lot of what um, the sort of early history of coffee is 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 not clear felling a forest but interplanting coffee inside a forest which is a fascinating history um, it's not exactly the case elsewhere in the world because in a lot of other places you know across the south and central americas uh, which also produce the largest volume of coffee people clear felled the forest and climatically those regions are very different they get rainfall every day uh so you don't really have the trees the shade trees in a sense don't play an ecological function during hot sort of drought or summer uh, summer things agroforestry and human development are fast changing the landscape of this critical bio hotspot as has the opening up of local production to the international coffee market 
With the intensification of coffee production, Arshia tells us there has also been a trend towards removing shade trees from coffee farms or substituting native tree species with exotic trees that have a commercial value. Trees like silver oak that aren't great for the local environment. Native trees are more climate resilient. They are better at evaporation, better for the hyper-local climate. But with climate change, coffee production in the Western Ghats is moving higher up in altitude. This is a cause for concern because the hills are really not that high. The weird or the quirk of the coffee plant is as much as it requires shade, it also requires sun. So the production or the productivity of coffee is very, very high when you grow it under direct sun. So it's this balance of do I keep shade so that I'm protecting my coffee during the summer or actually do I maximize the fruit set per plant is a decision that producers kind of you know deal with or gamble with every year. And over the past 30 years in a lot of the larger coffee growing districts you take Coog for example, there's lots of interesting ecological data that shows that almost 33-35% of forest cover has been lost from these districts because of the removal of shade trees from coffee farms. Agroforestry has intensified overall, not just from coffee, and there has been a direct impact on the local biodiversity of this region. Over, over the years, over the decades, increasing use of pesticide and fertilizer, weedicides, fungicides, that then are not only, of course, killing off unwanted weeds and so on, but they're also impacting biodiversity. So, you know, we've seen large-scale impact on bees across coffee-growing areas, a lot of places where, you know, that were almost equally famous for honey as they were for bee, uh, for coffee, like Coog, you find very, very little honey production from areas like this because pesticides have completely wiped out bee populations. When you're grappling with the question of sustainable or ethical production models, it's difficult when the system you're working with has a legacy you cannot change. Coffee has been produced in Coog for 200 years, but the plant itself comes from Ethiopia. And many of the small producers who now grow coffee used to grow vegetables on their land. Since her PhD, Arshia has founded a small coffee company, Black Baza Coffee, that works directly with many of the communities she was researching earlier. And yet now it has become the predominant source of livelihood for lots of people across the world. So should, should it be, uh, you know, there's two questions there. A, of course, is recognizing the fact that it used to be forest. B, it's recognizing the fact that a lot of the people who grow coffee actually used to grow tubers. They used to grow food. And now they no longer do. They're dependent entirely on this commercial cash crop, which is massively problematic, right? And so actually one of the conversations we're having with the growers we work with is, can you revert back to setting aside a small part of your coffee farm for something else you were growing, right? Which is crazy for a coffee company. Why would we do that? Why would we take, you know, look at taking areas out of coffee production? For all the years Arshia was a researcher, the communities she worked with saw little value in her analysis of the market-based approach. They just wanted her to come help them do it. So it was like, right, nobody, there was no appreciation for any PhDing at all <laughs> with the coffee producers I worked with, like zero appreciation. And it's even interesting because these questions around, you know, like, can a business engage in conservation and development is something that only conservationists and development people have asked us. 
none of the producers we've worked with have ever found this to be a conundrum. The idea of markets for nature, that communities can be offered tangible monetary incentives in order to change the way they may use or conserve land, is an important approach in environment and development, and it has taken off in the past 20 years. When Arshia began looking to study market-based approaches in India, she didn't go very far. But I sort of, you know, almost hit a wall because when I started my PhD, there weren't that many market-based projects in India at all. And that's how she wound up studying ecological certification mechanisms in coffee, which is another way to create a market value for sustainably grown products. And off late, certification has mushroomed in India. And the logic of a certification and the label is very simply that if I'm able to give you a premium for per kilo or per bag or whatever for the produce you have, um, then will you qualify or meet my standards of farming? Of course, we find that these kinds of global certification models have limited local relevance. Uh, a lot and almost all of these certification models are almost universal blueprints that are intended to be followed in exactly the same way across the world. So, for example, she tells us that global coffee certification may mandate that farms have a minimum number of shade trees. Might be super relevant in the context of Brazil, which Clearfeld, where coffee, you know, the forest was Clearfeld to grow coffee, and might have absolutely no relevance in India because almost every farm by nature has 12 trees per hectare. It doesn't mean that there aren't any ecological concerns in coffee production in India. It means that India has a different history, different conditions and producers react differently to these factors. A blanket approach doesn't always work here. There are also problems in the way in which the impact of these certification models are often measured. For many companies, certification is a medium of achieving scale, which is often measured not by an ecological or social metric, but by the quantity or volume of the certified product that is sold. And this may not match the diverse local contexts under which sustainability ought to be achieved. So, you know, the, I think one of the kind of key, perhaps conceptual limitations of a global certification is the fact that it's global and then not really designed keeping local contexts in mind. So, for example, you know, this ecological issue is there. But the other issue that we kept finding was, of course, the certification talks about minimum wages being paid to workers. So assume you have a really large plantation, whatever, tea, coffee, rubber, whatever, minimum wages being, you know, paid to people working there, which is not a question about living wages at all. And those are completely different issues. The issues of certification also come up in other areas. In our last episode, we talked about the challenges of sustainable fish production to Dr. John Kurian, who has worked with small-scale fisher workers for many, many years. And here he is pointing out the vested interests of large-scale producers who can influence certification. For example, the Marine Stewardship Council was set up nearly 20 years ago by Unilever and the WWF. Two big multinationals. One multinational in food and other products, and one multinational in terms of uh, trying to uh, organize our environmental consciousness. And they said that what they will do is they will certify fish. And once this fish is certified by them, uh, then, you know, you can get a logo. And then when the consumer buys it, he can be rest assured 
that the fish which has the marine stewardship logo has been caught in a sustainable manner. How do you certify prawns that have been caught through trawling in tropical seas? It just doesn't work because you see if if I if I try to certify that the prawns which are caught in the trawl are you know caught sustainably there is no way to track to see what has happened to the rest of the ecosystem Arshi also tells us that there's a lot of market research done that looks at whether consumers prefer to purchase labeled or certified goods I think maybe counter intuitive to what we might think actually people don't but in general consumers are not super inspired by yeah. certification labels and yet they are the only go to mechanism that there is to look at large scale i would say sort of almost you know lowest common denominator standards for farming so and and tourism and and other things to what extent has certification worked on you I will admit that it works really well on me and I'm a huge sucker for anything labeled sustainable or ethical. But what I worry about and this is something I actually read once in an academic paper is that consumers who regularly buy certified goods just end up actually consuming more, which makes sense. We probably have a larger expendable budget for these kinds of things. But if consumption itself is the issue and for there to be any hope in the world, we all need to consume less. Don't we? If products entice more consumerism, then there's no product bigger than tourism because tourism packages everything about a place. And what better example than the state of Kerala that has for years been known as God's own country because of a clever marketing strategy by the state very early on. Tourism is an explicit and large part of the state's development strategy, as it is in other countries like Sri Lanka, Thailand or even the Maldives. Sumesh Mangalasheri runs an NGO and a tourism company called Kabani in Wayanad in the delicate fragile hilly ecosystem in northern Kerala. He says his approach to tourism is different and tries not to use a consumerist paradigm to attract tourists. But it's also a home to a large number of ecotourism hotels, homestays and experiences. Are there any of these terms that you don't you think are misnomers or they, they ecotourism. don't really apply? Like, do you have any that don't like ecotourism? That way. You know, what is ecotourism? Basically, people wanted uh, conservation. People wanted, uh, you know, tourism through conservation. I mean, conservation through tourism. That's how the terminology, the concept and all came. So, but what is happening today? In the name of uh, ecotourism, you know, uh, people are bringing, uh, you know, tourists to ecologically sensitive areas. That's not ecotourism. Sumesh says to think of it as a triangle. There's the traveler, of course, local communities, and then there are the tourism service operators, the guides, taxis, hotels and homestays. And each group is trying to extract the maximum benefit for themselves. Like for example, a traveler is always looking for some sort of, you know, exploiting the service provider. So how to get benefit out of him or whatever. And the service provider is also looking for how to kind of, you know, get maximum, you know, benefit out of the traveler. And the local communities always get, uh, you know, the the bad part of these both people like, you know, pollution, I mean, so many things. So this is a normal situation. But in a very ideal situation, all these three people have got one interest that is good travel 
Wynard comprises of largely agrarian communities who have been facing the impacts of variable climate for years. Sumesh says the communities are experiencing agrarian distress. Operating in Kerala within a context where tourism is the development model, Sumesh is trying to tweak the system such that it enables the community to have more power in determining how they want their environment to be experienced. And his organization has been working with communities to help offset the interim losses that occur in the transition from non-organic to organic farming. We are trying to bring tourism to agriculture. Both are different. Bringing agriculture to tourism is basically a tourism product. But here we are trying to do another approach, basically bringing tourism to agriculture. So they all continue their farming, but tourism is an additional income. So we are trying to fill this gap. It is not a consumer-driven program. We don't worry about our travelers. All the farmers and others involved in our program taking tourism as an additional income. And second thing, as a host, community, they will decide who should come and who should not come. It's very clear for us. There's a different kind of accountability needed at the level of the state if, in fact, tourism is going to be part of the development model for that state. And policies need to ensure that communities also receive a portion of the benefit. And this is important, especially if we're working towards achieving our sustainable development goals, which also, by the way, include tourism. We need to develop tools that look at tourism from a development lens far more explicitly. There's no way to suggest that tourism is not detrimental in some way. Many places around the world that receive huge numbers of tourists have raised issues, from Barcelona to Mount Everest to the Great Barrier Reef and even Sikkim. So we don't want to call, you know, our organization as a sustainable tourism organization. We use some time, but it's not right, I think. Politically, it's not correct, I would say. But rather, we would like to explain us as a kind of a people-to-people kind of a company or organization or something like that. The footfall and consumption of hordes of travelers, no matter how large or small their footprint is, has a cumulative impact on everything from fuel to food to waste and even the people and their culture. Uh, what we are trying to do, it's a, it's a, it's a big uh, issue for people like us because one hand we are all talking about sustainability and we are also promoting a tourism, air travel is involved in it. So I cannot say that our program is you know, very sustainable in terms of environment and all. I should accept that, definitely. But at the same time, what we are trying to do, we are probably one or two tour operators in the world. We tell our customers that, you know, especially long-haul travel, if you really require, you come. But if you come for that, please use as much as possible, I mean, public transport as much as possible and uh, spend uh, your vacation in the villages. At least people should get some benefit because we are talking about climate justice. Because it's a justice issue now. One of the really interesting angles we explored when researching this episode was the approach that each person we spoke to took to setting up their operations with the communities they work with. And even over the past 10 years, a lot of the classic development philosophies have given way to new ways of doing development. See how the social enterprise model has proliferated. But more importantly, we wanted to explore this because how you run your operation is also a reflection of your underlying ethics and your theory of change. So, I mean, I think, and and this is in some ways the interesting part, is that I think for, for, for us, we're sort of navigating this balance of, you know, are we 
a social conservation project, are we a coffee business? Is something we go up and down a lot. And what you see is an outcome of this argument or discussion that we have, you know, over many cups of coffee <laughs> uh, about this. I think at a fundamental level, it challenges the fact that, you know, why do we assume that businesses always want to exploit natural resources and people? I think that's, there's no longer the need to kind of assume this, particularly because yeah. so many of the farmers we work with wanted this sort of model. They didn't want to set up an NGO. They didn't want to set up a trust or they didn't want to have an environmental awareness campaign. They said, look, we've been growing coffee to sell it for the past hundred years. Clearly, that's the major need that we have. And so can we work around coffee? In the end, the vehicles of development, the organizations, the NGOs, the businesses would ideally like to improve the bargaining power of the communities they work with so that they are more in charge of how they sell and present their product. It's our responsibility to communicate that nuanced story, keeping well in place the fact that our producers are extremely proud of who they are and their way of life and what they grow, right? And so this 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 playing back and forth with the symbolic sort of value of stuff is is interesting and there's a lot of i think critique around this poverty from a from a distance uh, or you know action from a distance kind of approach that that often is taken to in the marketplace which is something we've really really stayed away from looking at sustainable seafood for example uh, if if you were to explain that to like a five-year-old and say okay uh, you know at some point we're going to uh, deplete all our resources of seafood in the in the oceans uh, and the five-year-old will probably say okay let's stop eating seafood right are we at the stage now where all of this is a no-brainer is it time to start giving up these things we know climate change is upon us and things will only exponentially get worse if they continue as we do today. We're seeing a lot being done to educate people about sustainability, especially online and through social media. Divya Karnad, the scientist from our earlier episode, started something called In-Season Fish, along with her colleague Chaitanya Krishna. They disseminate information online and offline to engage directly with consumers about what's in season to eat, and to help them make better choices about eating fish. There's been a disproportionate amount of emphasis on making producers change their practices, and Divya felt that there needed to be more emphasis on the other group in the equation, the consumers, who are equally, if not more, responsible and powerful. Thomas Zacharias is a Mumbai-based chef and co-founder of the wonderful and extremely hip Bombay Canteen. It's hip partly because it's trying to make local Indian cuisines hip by reimagining them. He's also prolific on social media and created a hashtag called the Indian Food Movement. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Indian Food Movement. It's, it's a random hashtag I coined about a year ago. The reason I started the hashtag is to get people excited about it. Uh, chefs and consumers and just people at home alike. 
um, thankfully I have a social media following that extends way beyond the people who come to our restaurant uh, and it came to a point where I realized that I was actually influencing them uh, and so when, when we talk about the Indian food movement it's it's all of that put together so it's I'm, 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 I'm trying to get people excited about uh, local ingredients uh, the, the idea that uh, you can get great produce in our country as long as you just look for it and kind of ask those right questions um, you, that you eat seasonally. Um, the, the vegetable is meant to be eaten at a particular time of the year. That's when it's going to be at its pristine best. But even today, there's a clear distinction between a so-called no-holds-barred social media movement online where chefs can play, experiment and influence and the food business, which is hugely competitive and is driven by profit. Food habits are admittedly dictated by trade organizations and chefs. But moving away from the norm takes longer than one would expect, because consumers get set in their ways and expectations. But can they be moved? And what are they moved by? Uh, the thing is, like a lot of what I talk about on Instagram, we don't really talk about at the restaurant. Uh, we took a conscious call not to do that because ultimately we wanted this to be a fun place where people just come and just let loose. Uh, uh, somewhere along the way, over the years, it's great to see that uh, the two worlds meet uh, and people either eat it here and talk about it or see it on my Instagram profile and then come and uh, try it. Uh, I don't know how much of an impact that's having. Uh, I, I guess in subtle ways, it's, you can call it uh, consumer engineering, but uh, I think, like I said, it's, it's not... What, the change that needs to happen cannot happen from one chef or one restaurant alone. Uh, and the problem is that there aren't enough people talking about it. Enough people who have a voice and who have that influence uh, talking or doing anything about it. There is a slow but sure move towards eating local today, but it's definitely driven from an elite porch. But it's still important because it's moving consumers at this level who drive the demand for non-native foods. What is happening right now, it's, it's more of a trend than anything else. Uh, nobody's, do, everybody's doing it, nobody's doing it for the sake and the, and the real reason why we should be doing it, which is to kind of promote and sustain those communities, those, those people. And so it means going back and changing the mindsets of the chefs from the beginning, which means catching them in school and not when they're running a restaurant worrying about profit margins. But hospitality and culinary schools in India are still quite fixed, and teach limited cuisines. And quite often, local and seasonal are not words commonly used in class. That is still how uh, our, our schools are run. Uh, talk, talking about schools, you go back to uh, uh, pre-college, and you talk about high schools, there's no conversation around uh, eating, uh, whether it's sustainably for yourself or for the environment, uh, or for the community around you. Uh, so there is, that is a systematic problem uh, which needs to be addressed. And what chefs like Thomas Zacharias want are discerning customers. Not discerning in the sense that they know their molecular gastronomy from their sous vide, but discerning enough to want to know where the food came from and who all helped to get it onto the plate. And using that knowledge to perhaps make a change in their lifestyle. Here's Ganesh, the fisherman from our earlier episode. He wants the local consumption of local fish to increase, for sustainability, of course, but also for the survival of his community that catches the fish. I, I, I think the, a lot has to do with the hotel industry uh, of India. So if you go like seven years back, uh, most of the fishing menu had pomfret surmai or prawns 
or rawas so these four five items were on to their menu but right now there is a new addition of basa fish so if you go to most of the restaurants or hotels or five star anybody everybody is using basa fish on there and that in return is harming fishermen because these are these guys are trend setter you know they they tell consumers what to eat what what to not so i never see the local seafood which is being caught by the fishermen are getting a lot attention by these guys basa became really popular a few years ago it's a tasteless and therefore versatile fish that is imported and restaurants very quickly adopted it onto their menu because it was cheaper more easily accessible and easy to cook that's what they say and ironically all the local fish that no one wants to eat in india gets exported china vietnam indonesia korea wahan pe export ho rahe because our local people are not eating it so fish is like tuna as mackerels ribbon fish groupers uh, not groupers sorry uh, horse mackerels then all these pelagic fishes carangids i can name hundreds of fish which should be eaten in india which will be self sufficient but all these fishes get cheaply exported to china japan vietnam indonesia because there is no demand locally why there is no demand because there is no demand created locally all these hotels have adopted one fish menu so there is only one fish fry fish tikka which is basa and everything and if that can be changed something like seasonal menu what chef zack is trying in august to december you have to try to eat pomfret surmai that's fine but after december you can try mackerels you can try catfish you can try snappers carangids all these fishes but leaving sustainability aside it's ultimately very important to create a viable business especially for the small scale independent producers many of whom don't want to do anything else except what they've always done and that they still have the skills to continue doing this is the challenge for people like arshia ganesh sumesh and the communities they work with and the challenges here range from finding consumers willing to pay an extra buck to being supported to make changes to production to finding ways to not be victims to the vagaries of the international market and other aggressive competitors there is a growing anxiety around climate change and it's impossible not to feel it for a long time we've consumed without any understanding of what the consequences are a new book on climate change by david wallace wells talks about how the majority of fossil fuel burning has occurred in the last 25 years And in India this has happened in an even shorter time period. For years India's position has been about how we have the right to pollute because as a poor country we assert our right to develop which means we cannot be held to the same standards as industrialized nations. While our per capita pollution rates may be low it is highly skewed because we have a huge urban aspirational middle class that is growing and that want things. How do we start putting the bricks? People point to policy to regulation and to making climate change a political mandate front and center and these cannot be underestimated many also say that ethical consumerism is a drop in the ocean compared to the scale of the problem that can only be dealt with by political will while we cannot hide behind the rose tinted goggles of the ethical labels it might be the first step in a pathway towards buying into a more ethical economic system do you ask where the fish is coming from if that amount of money is been given to fishermen source that fish from lekan and serve on to the plate that economically can be profitable for fishermen so you have to change your eating habits not focusing on only two things like surmai and pomfret you have to f- focus on other species which are available like tuna mackerels and all these where the value of the fish is right now 100 but within few years time if that goes to up to 200 rupees at least that will be economically beneficial for 
fisherman then he can talk about sustainability then he can talk about putting less efforts into fishing because he is getting the money for the other fishes then it can be a successful model so to get back to your original question working with the consumers is very important i i don't uh, belittle that at all because this is what i was doing right from the beginning from day one of my entry this was what i was trying to do i was trying to educate the consumer both in terms of what fish is but more importantly who is catching this fish i wanted them to know who is catching this fish and why we are doing this you know but as i said of the of the 20 tons of fish that landed every day in my village i was able to do this only for 200 kilograms that, that is almost the kind of proportion that you are talking about of the lot of good work that is going uh, around in bangalore and other big cities trying to say look consume only this fish during this month and don't don't eat mackerels at this time and all that now this doesn't have any impact on the catching of mackerel or sea fish or whatever it is yes we have this project that sort of looks at inspiring consumers to think and engage with where their stuff is coming from being very well aware of the fact that actually perhaps increased consumerism is the source of a lot of the issues we face so we know this um and i don't think there's any sort of um you know pretense about the fact that consuming less is better many small scale producers around the world are being driven into sustainable production because they think it will add value to their products but for them to be successful to the point where it makes a really big impact we also need for a big enough market it's a scale issue in india in particular environmental solutions are closely associated with small scale production and the conditions under which they operate it's clear that we are all muddling our way through this but sort of going back to this question of what you'd like to get out of this project and and i don't know maybe you have a different for me it's really simple i'd really like to see far more community based solutions to the issues we find and you know whether it's within our cities or in the farming space or in the conservation space i think we've sort of depended on either donors or the state for far too long uh, and then sort of shelved in some sense uh, the fact that we ourselves can create models that don't rely on any of these but there are questions that need to be asked of every individual every business and every state like are you willing to buy less are you willing to buy more ethically are you creating a market opportunity that might be there for an ethical brand are you willing to see the ecological and social injustice in the current economic system and are you willing to find a way to be a part of the solution We realize in this episode that none of our speakers introduced themselves. So a very big thanks to My name is Thomas Zacharias and I'm the chef partner at the Bombay Canteen. My life revolves around food. <laughs> okay, well my name is John Kurian. My name is Ganesh Nagpur. I belong to Karanja Fishes Cooperative Society. I'm a director there. I'm Arshia and I'm the founder of Black Bazaar Coffee. And thank you Sumesh Mangalashery who forgot to tell us his name in the 6 hours plus of audio we have on him. In the field is a vaca production. This episode is hosted and produced by Radhika Vishwanathan and Samyukta Varma. 
Our sound producer is Santosh Nataraja. Our theme song is by Hollis Coates. Show and art design by Bhushan Raj. This episode was mixed and recorded at Third Eye Studios. Check out our show notes, transcripts and more information on inthefieldindia.org or reach out to us on social media. We're at In The Field India. In The Field is supported by Rohini Nilekini Philanthropy.